On July 27, 2004, an Illinois state legislator by the name of Barack Obama delivered the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in Boston, Massachusetts. According to a New York Times article from August 1, 2004, after the speech, quote, pundits even predicted he would be the first black president, end quote. On this episode of Lectures in History, University of Kansas professor Robert Rowland delivers a lecture on the speech that made future President Barack Obama the Democratic Party's hot ticket. Stay tuned. Class starts right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today we're talking about a speech that changed the United States. Barack Obama's 2004 speech at the Democratic National Convention, it was a keynote address. He was a state senator at the time. Now pause and ask yourself, do I know the name of my state senator? I had to check to make sure I had, I did remember the name of mine. He was so unknown that the major networks didn't cover the speech live. But as he gave the speech, and we'll see that in a few minutes, he gets the attention of the audience and the nation begins to change. Obama himself has admitted that he was virtually unknown. Obama said, nobody knew who I was. After he gave the speech, he was immediately being touted as a potential future president of the United States. Mike Thomas uh, wrote that he had wowed faithful across the country as a beacon of hope and a future presidential candidate. Writing in the Washington Post, Dan Balls and Haynes Johnson said, in just 20 minutes, it's really 17, Obama's political career had changed forever. The reaction of the speech was overwhelming. After he gave the speech, Obama had to beg a pack of photographers to please let him go to the bathroom because they were just following him. It was a speech that changed politics. Chris Matthews, a very famous commentator, said of the speech, it was an amazing moment in history. People compared him to Mario Cuomo, who had given a great keynote, but that wasn't all. He was compared to Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, and Bill Clinton. I think the first two are closer to being accurate. By after the speech, he became the most popular member of the Democratic Party. 51 months later, he's elected President of the United States. 51 months later. There are only two other precedents in all of American history for a speech like this, transforming an unknown political figure into a nationally known and future candidate for president and successful candidate for president. Ronald Reagan gave a speech for Barry Goldwater in 1964. Among Reagan scholars, it is simply known as the speech. Before that, Ronald Reagan was thought of as a B-level actor. 
after that, he was thought of as one of the leaders of the Republican Party. He would be elected governor of California and president 16 years later. The other precedent is Abraham Lincoln's House Divided speech. You know when you're in the same category of rhetorical effectiveness as Ronald Reagan and Abraham Lincoln that you're not doing too bad. Now, our goal here today is to analyze the effectiveness of this speech and figure out why it was so successful. Now, analyzing effectiveness is not as easy as it might seem to be. You know, you would think, well, we'll just look at the effect of the speech. But in almost all cases with rhetoric, there is no data. If the Governor Kelly of Kansas gives a speech, there's probably going to be no polling, nothing that would tell us whether the speech was effective. And if there is data, say six people write letters to the editor or she gets applause three times, it's often very hard to tell what that means. Was the audience being polite or was it really a stirring speech? Now, in other instances, as in this one, analyzing whether it was effective really isn't the point because we know it was effective. This was an unknown state senator this speech was so important that he would become president 51 months later, uh, the elected president 51 months later. I have one more anecdote about the importance of the speech. He gave a keynote at the convention that Senator John Kerry was about to be nominated for president. When Obama was elected president, he, Obama hand wrote on the invitation to Kerry, who came to the inauguration. I'm here because of you. And what he meant was that absent this speech, he never would have been elected president in 2008. So we know the speech was important. We know it was incredibly effective. We know in other instances we don't have data, but we still have to figure out if the speech or other rhetoric was well designed. Fortunately, there is a system for analyzing whether rhetoric is well designed to respond to any particular situation. And the way we do that is by considering is by considering first what's the purpose of the rhetoric. And by purpose we mean themes and requested actions. What's the main point? And what is it that the speaker or writer wants the audience to do? Then think about the barriers to achieving that. The barriers are primarily audience attitudes and values, but they also might be lack of interest. They also could be lack of knowledge. All of those things could be barriers. And in a few minutes, I'll talk about the barriers that Obama confronted when he gave the 2004 DNC keynote address. And then we consider what are the main strategies in the speech. And there is almost an equation for evaluating effectiveness. You ask, were the strategies well designed to overcome the barriers in order to achieve the purpose? So for example, in this instance, there were negative attitudes about Democrats that were making it hard for a presidential candidate to win the presidency. And as you will see in a few minutes, Obama brilliantly 
dealt with those negative attitudes, which were the primary barriers that he faced. So this is a case study of how one evaluates effectiveness, because we know the effectiveness in this instance, and our goal today is to explain why it was so effective, and then why it was less effective when he ran for president in 2008, and why two of the strategies were much less effective after he became president of the United States. So let's talk about a a keynote in 2004. At one point, the the purpose of a keynote, and it is a kind of rhetoric that is exactly what its name suggests, it's designed to hit the keynote for the convention. And so he is trying to sell the country, not just the people in the hall, but the people watching on television and other observers, that the Democrats are the party they should support, and in particular, they should support the nominee of the party, Senator John Kerry. So broadly, his message is, is to support Kerry, but even more broadly is to say Democrats are the party that best represents and will help the American people as a whole. Now the situation. Obama, one barrier he has is he's unknown. It really is astonishing that Kerry chose Obama. He was a state senator running for the, for the Illinois Senate. And by the way, that's a little bit of an eerie parallel with Abraham Lincoln and the House Divided speech, also running for the United States Senate. Uh, Obama won. Lincoln did not uh, in, in that race, their races. Uh, Kerry is running against incumbent President George W. Bush. 2004, the overwhelming important issues relate to the war in Iraq and the war in terrorism. And while things were beginning to go badly in Iraq, they had not reached the point of quagmire that would occur in the period after the 2004 election. Kerry had been a United States senator from Massachusetts. Because he was from Massachusetts, it was easy to stereotype him as too liberal. In fact, he was primarily a centrist. But other, he was also attacked in the campaign, oddly enough, because he was accused of not supporting soldiers and then veterans in Vietnam. Now, Kerry had served in Vietnam and served with distinction. I know he won a silver star for his heroism. But he was stereotyped as anti-soldiers because after he served in Vietnam, he joined the Vietnam Veterans Against the War and, and what gave a very famous speech in which he opposed the war in Vietnam. So that, that idea that Democrats are not as patriotic and not as strong on defense as Republicans, that was a general idea about Democrats, but it was also a specific idea about Kerry. Now, the two primary barriers that Obama has to overcome are, at first, the perception I mentioned that Democrats are soft on defense. The Pew Research Center said at the time in research that 53% of the American people overall thought the best way to protect American security was peace through military strength. That's basically Reagan's doctrine, peace through strength. That was 69% of Republicans thought that, and even 44% of Democrats. 
and the war in Iraq was still relatively popular. In October of 2003, so a little bit before this, 53% of independents said the war in Iraq was the right decision, along with 85% of Republicans. So later, public opinion has turns against Iraq, but it had not done that at that point in time. So Obama needs to persuade the country that Democrats are not soft on defense and not a party of weakness. I think domestic policies and the barrier about domestic policies was even more important. And that was the perception that Democrats were too liberal and supported wasteful programs that didn't work very well. Pew found in 2005, that's the Pew Research Center, right after the election that 39% of the public labeled themselves as conservative. You may be thinking, well, it's only 39%. Only 19% labeled themselves as liberal. So the natural strongest constituency for the Democratic Party is only about 20% of the public. And one more statistic from the Pew Research Center. Nine in ten Republicans and 63% of Democrats thought, listen to this line, poor people have become too dependent on government assistance programs. It's Democrats that support what are sometimes called social programs. And certainly Kerry did and Obama did in 2004 and Obama did as president. So you can hear in that statistic that he has to overcome a barrier of persuading the public that Democrats really want to spend money on programs that work programs that aren't wasteful, and programs that will help poor people lift themselves out of poverty, not remain in poverty. And by the way, if you're thinking that there probably was a racial component to that, that there were perceptions that were about race and poor people, I think, unfortunately, you're right. Uh, of course, poor people uh, are, are more white than any other race, but that there's a negative and unfair stereotype that people had. The thing about rhetoric is one can, can, can de- decry the unfair stereotype, as I'm sure we all do, but Obama still had to confront it. So those are the barriers. Now we're going to watch the, about 10 minutes of the speech. And what I want you to do is watch as the audience response builds And then I want you to think about the strategies that he's using. And then we're going to come back, and I'm going to talk about what happens in the first 10 minutes. And remember, there we'll have time for discussion at the end of this. So let's watch the first 10. At the beginning, people are kind of milling around. And then gradually he gets their attention, and the, and the cheering gets louder and louder. And in the last six and a half minutes, it gets even louder. So let's watch that first 10 minutes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dick Durbin. You make us all proud. On behalf of the great state of Illinois, crossroads of a nation, land of Lincoln, let me express my deepest gratitude for the privilege of addressing this convention. Tonight is a particular honor for me because, let's face it, 
my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. My father was a foreign student, born and raised in a small village in Kenya. He grew up herding goats, went to school in a tin roof shack. His father, my grandfather, was a cook, a domestic servant to the British. But my grandfather had larger dreams for his son. Through hard work and perseverance, my father got a scholarship to study in a magical place, America, that shone as a beacon of freedom and opportunity to so many who had come before. While studying here, my father met my mother. She was born in a town on the other side of the world, in Kansas. Her father worked on oil rigs and farms through most of the Depression. The day after Pearl Harbor, my grandfather signed up for duty, joined Patton's army, marched across Europe. Back home, my grandmother raised a baby and went to work on a bomber assembly line. After the war, they studied on the GI Bill, bought a house through FHA, and later moved west, all the way to Hawaii, in search of opportunity. And they, too, had big dreams for their daughter, a common dream born of two continents. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. They would give me an African name, Barack, or Blessed, believing that in a tolerant America, your name is no barrier to success. They imagined, they imagined me going to the best schools in the land, even though they weren't rich, because in a generous America, you don't have to be rich to achieve your potential. They're both passed away now. And yet I know that on this night, they look down on me with great pride. They stand here, and I stand here today, grateful for the diversity of my heritage, aware that my parents' dreams live on in my two precious daughters. I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me, and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. Tonight, we gather to affirm the greatness of our nation, not because of the height of our skyscrapers or the power of our military or the size of our economy. Our pride is based on a very simple premise, summed up in a declaration made over 200 years ago. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. A faith, a faith in simple dreams, an insistence on small miracles, that we can tuck in our children at night and know that they are fed and clothed and safe from harm that we can say what we think, write what we think, without hearing a sudden knock on the door, that we can have an idea and start our own business without paying a bribe, that we can participate in the political process without fear of retribution, and that our votes will be counted at least most of the time.
This year, in this election, we are called to reaffirm our values and our commitments, to hold them against a hard reality, and see how we're measuring up to the legacy of our forebears and the promise of future generations. And fellow Americans, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, I say to you tonight, we have more work to do. More work to do for the workers I met in Galesburg, Illinois, who are losing their union jobs at the Maytag plant that's moving to Mexico, and now are having to compete with their own children for jobs that pay seven bucks an hour. More to do for the father that I met who was losing his job and choking back the tears wondering how he would pay $4,500 a month for the drugs his son needs without the health benefits that he counted on. More to do for the young woman in East St. Louis and thousands more like her who has the grades, has the drive, has the will, but doesn't have the money to go to college. Now, don't get me wrong. The people I meet in small towns and big cities and diners and office parks, they don't expect government to solve all their problems. They know they have to work hard to get ahead, and they want to. Go into the collar counties around Chicago, and people will tell you they don't want their tax money wasted by a welfare agency or by the Pentagon. Go, in, go into any inner city neighborhood, and folks will tell you that government alone can't teach our kids to learn. They know that parents have to teach that children can't achieve unless we raise their expectations and turn off the television sets and eradicate the slander that says a black youth with a book is acting white. They know those things. People don't expect, people don't expect government to solve all their problems but they sense deep in their bones that with just a slight change in priorities, we can make sure that every child in America has a decent shot at life and that the doors of opportunity remain open to all. They know we can do better, and they want that choice. In this election, we offer that choice. Our party has chosen a man to lead us who embodies the best this country has to offer, and that man is John Kerry. John Kerry understands the ideals of community, faith, and service because they've defined his life. From his heroic service to Vietnam, to his years as a prosecutor and lieutenant governor, through two decades in the United States Senate, he's devoted himself to this country. Again and again, we've seen him make tough choices when easier ones were available. His values and his record affirm what is best in us. John Kerry believes in an America where hard work is rewarded. So instead of offering tax breaks to companies shipping jobs overseas, he offers them to companies creating jobs here at home. John Kerry believes in an America where all Americans can afford the same health coverage our politicians in Washington have for themselves. John Kerry believes in energy independence, so we aren't held hostage to the profits of oil companies or the sabotage of foreign oil fields. John Kerry believes in the constitutional freedoms that have made our country the envy of the world, and he will never sacrifice our basic liberties, nor use faith as a wedge to divide us. And John Kerry believes 
that in a dangerous world, war must be an option sometimes, but it should never be the first option. You know, a while back, a while back, I met a young man named Seamus in a VFW hall in East Moline, Illinois. He was a good-looking kid, 6'2", 6'3", clear-eyed with an easy smile. He told me he joined the Marines and was heading to Iraq the following week. And as I listened to ex him explain why he'd enlisted, the absolute faith he had in our country and its leaders, his devotion to duty and service, I thought, this young man was all that any of us might ever hope for in a child. But then I asked myself, are we serving Seamus as well as he's serving us? I thought of the 900 men and women, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, friends and neighbors who won't be returning to their own hometowns. I thought of the families I'd met who were struggling to get by without a loved one's full income, or whose loved ones had returned with a limb missing, or nerves shattered, but still lacked long-term health benefits because they were reservists. When we send our young men and women into harm's way, we have a solemn obligation not to fudge the numbers or shade the truth about why they're going, to care for their families while they're gone, to tend to the soldiers upon their return, and to never, ever go to war without enough troops to win the war, secure the peace, and earn the respect of the world. Cheers are going to get louder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You've seen the bulk of the themes and the main strategies that are in this speech. The, the themes are that Democrats are committed to basic American values. He emphasizes that when he talks about the idea that parent that that parents need to read to their kids. He talks about what he called that the slander that a kid with a book was acting white. He talks about not wanting to waste money on defense or welfare. He makes it very clear that he's committed to hard work, patriotism. He's just done that in the section when he talks about Kerry's patriotism and going after real enemies. So you see how he directly states that Democrats are committed to basic American values and how in so doing he confronts both of the two attitudinal barriers that I talked about. He says, Democrats, we're patriotic, we're going to go after our enemies, and by the way, Osama bin Laden would find out as president that he meant what he said. And also that Democrats are committed to spending money wisely. But he also is making a point about our failure to live up to the American dream. He talks about Seamus, 
who were not taken care of and all the other veterans who were not taken care of. He talks about the, 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 peop, the, the people who have lost their jobs. He talks about the, the girl in East, in East St. Louis who, who has the grades, has the will, but isn't able to go to school because she doesn't have the money. And although he doesn't say it, he's obviously talking about a diverse group of Americans. And he is saying that, they, that with his line is, with just a slight change in our priorities, we could provide a country that would help all of those people. The father who lost his job and now isn't going to be able to provide his child with the drugs the child needs. So the th- what he's saying is that the American dream is not being fulfilled, but it could be. Now, the requested action is obviously to vote for Kerry, but more broadly, the requested action for the, for the country is to see the Democratic Party is not exactly the way you thought the Democratic Party was. But he's also preaching to Democrats. We need to be a party that reaches out to everybody, that recognizes these, these barriers that no one wants to waste money. So you see what he's doing. What's his role in this? And you, you, it's both an argument and a narrative at the same time. He's telling a story about individual people, but he's making an argument. And he himself is part of that narrative. He says, in no other nation on earth would my story even be possible. His father was an African student, his mother from Kansas. He's just one more ordinary American who has succeeded both because he had opportunities and because of his own hard work. He's proof that if we have that slight change in priorities, that we can help everyone. Because unfortunately, not everyone will have the ability of a Barack Obama. So in terms of strategies, you see he makes a strong argument, and then he tells a narrative with vignettes. The narrative supports the argument, but the vignettes are also part of a larger story. Our most important national story, the American dream, it's our national myth, not a myth in the sense of a false story, but a myth in the sense of a very fundamental story. And he appeals to basic American values like community, patriotism, responsibility. And also he's beginning to talk about our shared similarity. That we are both a diverse nation and all the same because we're all Americans. Now, as I said, you, and you watched at the beginning as the cheers were modest and then they got louder and then they got much, much louder. We're about to see cheers get much, much louder. Cheers that in a way still resonate in this country. So let's watch the conclusion. Now, now let me be clear. Let me be clear. We have real enemies in the world. These enemies must be found. 
they must be pursued, and they must be defeated. John Kerry knows this. And just as Lieutenant Kerry did not hesitate to risk his life to protect the men who served with him in Vietnam, President Kerry will not hesitate one moment to use our military might to keep America safe and secure. John Kerry believes in America. And he knows that it's not enough for just some of us to prosper. For alongside our famous individualism, there's another ingredient in the American saga, a belief that we're all connected as one people. If there is a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me even if it's not my child. If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer even if it's not my grandparent. If there's an Arab American family being rounded up without benefit of an attorney or due process, that threatens my civil liberties. It is that fundamental belief it is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. It's what allows us to pursue our individual dreams and yet still come together as one American family. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us, the spin masters, the negative ad peddlers who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The pundits the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and their patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. In the end, in the end, in the end, that's what this election is about. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism, or do we participate in a politics of hope? John Kerry calls on us to hope. John Edwards calls on us to hope. I'm not talking about blind optimism here, the almost willful ignorance that thinks unemployment will go away if we just don't think about it, or health care crisis will solve itself if we just ignore it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more substantial. It's the hope of slaves sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. The hope of immigrants setting out for dif distant shores. 
the hope of a young naval lieutenant bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta, the hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds, the hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. in the face of difficulty, hope in the face of uncertainty, the audacity of hope. In the end, that is God's greatest gift to us, the bedrock of this nation, a belief in things not seen, a belief that there are better days ahead. I believe that we can give our middle class relief and provide working families with a road to opportunity. I believe we can provide jobs to the jobless, homes to the homeless, and reclaim young people in cities across America from violence and despair. I believe that we have a righteous wind at our backs, and that as we stand on the crossroads of history, we can make the right choices and meet the challenges that face us. America, tonight, if you feel the same energy that I do, if you feel the same urgency that I do, if you feel the same passion that I do, if you feel the same hopefulness that I do, if we do what we must do, then I have no doubt that all across the country, from Florida to Oregon, from Washington to Maine, the people will rise, the people will rise up in November and John Kerry will be sworn in as president and John Edwards will be sworn in as vice president and this country will reclaim its promise and out of this long political darkness, a brighter day will come. Thank you very much, everybody. God bless you. Thank you. He was wrong about John Kerry. But he wasn't wrong about the power of the message. You could see as the cheers become incredibly loud. Incredibly loud. What did he do in that last six minutes? Well, he reinforced the theme about making the American dream a reality for all. And I think that's the most important message and the arguments that go with that. Remember, with just a slight change in our policies, we could help everyone. But he also emphasized a theme of similarity. He talked about how we are not black America or white America, Hispanic America. We're the United States of America. And when one defends social programs, it's possible to do that by arguing that we have to help particular groups. And that has been a very common approach taken by Democrats. From Mario Cuomo, there were pictures of Jesse Jackson uh, who ran for president, uh, and there are pictures of Jesse Jackson earlier in the address as he stood and applauded for Obama. And of course, there are many groups who've been discriminated against who the United States as a country has treated badly. But when you single out groups rhetorically, there tends to be a negative reaction from people not in those groups. So Obama took a different approach. He is saying we need to help the people in central cities. He's saying we need to help the people in small towns. But he's saying that we need to help them not because they're different, but because they're the same as all of us. They're Americans just like us. E pluribus unum, he says, out of many one. 
And that strategy of emphasizing our commonality, not our differences, as a way of of supporting liberal policies. And let us be honest, there are many communities representing every possible race, every ethnic group, every gender that have been left behind. That's, his, that's the strategy that gets developed one of the, the, in, in that section, along with the American dream, and along with a, a, a new strategy that had not appeared earlier. And that's his attack on partisanship. He talks about the spin master, my asters, and the negative ad peddlers. And that's when he said we're not red states and blue states. And he's again emphasizing with that appeal that Democrats have strong values. Remember, in the blue states, we're coaching Little League. But in the red states, they have gay friends too. And of course, you know, people are just people. That's his larger message. So those three strategies, the American dream is not being fulfilled, but with just a slight change in our policies, we could fulfill it. The appeal to all Americans that we should help people not because particular interest groups are different. He is not denying that people have been left behind. There are people of every race. For example, Seamus. He does not tell us who, what Seamus' identity is, but it is an Irish name. One suspects that Seamus was a, a white young man. But in Obama's world, does it matter? We were not living up to what we should for all the people fighting for us, just as we weren't living up to the, the, the parents who, had, who didn't have the money for their kids or the people losing their jobs. So there's this appeal to shared identity because we're all just people. And then there is the appeal to produce real change by moving beyond partisanship. It was these strategies that would help Obama win the, uh, the nomination in 2008. And the postpartisan appeal, the we're not red states, we're blue states, that was particularly important in the primary campaign. And the, and the New Hampshire speech where he had unexpectedly lost, and he's all, he doesn't have a concession speech written, so he audaciously gives his victory speech, even though he had lost, he he admits he lost the primary. That's where he has the yes we can language, yes we can repair this world, yes we can fix this nation. But that was based on one other thing he said in that speech that was evident in 2004. He said, "Our our politics, we are not as divided as our politics would suggest. Now, when he, when he actually gets the nomination, that theme that we're not as divided as our politics would suggest no longer helps him because he is beginning to discover that for much of this nation, we were every bit as divided as our politics would suggest. The Republican nominee for vice president in 2008 when Obama ran the first time, Sarah Palin, the former governor of Alaska, I guess the, the, she then said in that campaign that Obama had been palling around with terrorists and he, she accused him of being soft on terrorism. 
Obama was beginning to discover that he had not been right when he said that we are not as divided as our politics would suggest. And he also was beginning to see that for many Americans, the idea that we're all the same ran up against a pretty strong entrenched prejudice. Now, in Obama's 2008 campaign, that appeal that we're not a black America, a white America, Hispanic America, an Asian America, we're the United States America, that did get some significant uh, Republican support. Um, Colin Powell, who had been uh, Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration, uh, former Massachusetts Governor William Weld, and some others. He got 43% of the white vote in 2008. That's more than any Democrat had received since Bill Clinton. So you can see the strategy was effective at at some level, but it's still only 43%. The thing that carried him to victory in 2008 was his appeal to the American dream. He had made the argument that with just a little change in priority, all those different people who were hurting could be helped. In that campaign, after the Republican convention, there was a brief period in which McCain and Palin took the lead. Obama would go on to win a decisive victory, but only after the economic, the depths of the economic collapse became clear. And at that point, Obama's message that we have strong arguments for government acting, and in in taking those actions, we can continue the American dream for all, that message was what carried him to victory. He also had a very strong debate uh, performance. As is evident, if you've ever studied Obama for even a few minutes, he is very, very good with words and argument. These strategies would not work as well when after he was president. In fact, the, in particular, there's a little ugliness in the reaction to him. Obama would discover after he was elected president that his postpartisan appeal, that we're not as divided as our politics would suggest, that had the disadvantage of being false. Important Republican leaders in the Congress met before Obama was sworn in and decided that they would oppose everything his administration proposed even before they knew what it was even before they knew what it was. And that happened at a time where the most severe economic crisis the country had faced since the Great Depression. But because of Obama's postpartisan appeal, they would then point to their own opposition as proof that Obama had failed. You can see the rhetorical box that Obama was in because of the postpartisan appeal. He had promised to bring the nation together. He had promised we are not as divided as our politics would suggest. Republicans said, but I'm, I don't agree with you, therefore that demonstrates you failed. Republicans, as one commentator said, would block action and Obama would get the blame. A pretty bad situation. I think we also have to say that Obama ran into the weakness of his appeal that we're all the same. And again, he got 
a stronger support than any other Democrat since Bill Clinton. And of course, the other Democrats who ran were white and didn't run into the same prejudice that Obama did. But you have to recognize that after Obama became president, there were an ugly outbreak of racism. Anybody of the right age received emails with memes that just reflected outright racism. I certainly know I received things like that, where I set a world record for deleting them. And there were also, at one point, a huge percentage of the American people, 34% of the American people, believed that Obama had been born in Kenya, which is a pretty astonishing thing to believe since there were birth announcements in two different Hawaii papers when Obama was born in Honolulu. Obama must have been a pretty, as a fetus, in his mother's womb, apparently, he took out the birth announcements from Kenya. It was absurd, but almost a little bit more than a third of the American people believed it, a sign of how endemic racism remains in American society. The message that carried through throughout his presidency was his appeal to the American dream. And that was the message that unified Democrats that led to a relatively easy re-election campaign in 2012. But I've emphasized the level of partisanship. And I've emphasized how divided we were as a nation and that the appeal to shared identity, because God knows we're all just people, that that message still has some power. Again, Obama got more support than any Democrat since Bill Clinton, who didn't run into the same racist reaction. And, and he built a multiracial coalition that changed American politics. And I want to end not with a quotation from the 2004 keynote speech, but from his first inaugural, that is, he said the 2004 keynote speech made possible. In that inaugural address, Obama spoke of his hope for the future for the United States and I think more broadly for the world. We cannot but believe, he said, that the old hatreds shall someday pass, that the lines of tribes shall soon dissolve. I think if, if now former President Obama were here, what he would say is we are not to that point yet. But many, of, many Americans, and to a lesser extent around the world, have recognized the power of his message that we are all just human beings. We come from different ethnography, uh, but we have different backgrounds. We look slightly different. You know, I, I, I often joke about my, surely God did not intend my pasty, uh, you know, the way I look as the default, uh, that there's some design flaws there that we're all just people. And that message, although it didn't always help him as president, is a message that will continue to resonate along with his appeal to finally make the American dream a reality for all. Now, I've done a lot of talking now, and I know people have questions and comments or, and disagreements are always welcome. So what questions do you have? What comments do you have? And, 
and we have, uh, you can speak loudly with the mic. Everybody can be, have a loud voice. Don't be shy. Oh, come on, not every, oh, go ahead. It's, go ahead. Do I go up? Yeah, you sure do. Come on up. It's like a game show. Come on down. <laughs> Except for the lack of prizes. What do, you, what do you think? So that last thing you said about um, the quote, oh, basically Obama said we're all just people and we're not at the point yet where we realize that, that there's right. equality. Did, it, did I get that right? Uh, he, he said it better than either one of us, but that's, <laughs> if we have to be as eloquent as Obama, we better go home. I, I mean, I do agree that we're all people and that we all, you know, have the similarities of the genetics and the, on the inside, we are just people. But honestly, the dream that I've heard him say and many others say, I honestly just don't see that ever happening in the world that we live in with the, the partisanship, the hatred that we have. I mean, I've seen beautiful speeches with rhetoric that make me in the moment be like, well, maybe this is possible, maybe this can happen, but like what we just watched at the end, I, I actually found myself about to do yeah. like this, and I'm like, oh wait, we're in a room. But I, when I really think about it, I'm just like, no, 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 this isn't going to happen, i got to be real. Let me give you a little hope. I, I hear you, it's hard to look at the United States and not, you know, what was it? Very recently, someone was murdered for having a flag, a, a, a pride flag outside their store, basically saying, we welcome everybody and I'm not going to discriminate it. It's, it's hard to be optimistic when you see that. And of course, the murder of people of color that occurs disproportionately. You know, we, we do lots of horrible things to uh, people in this country. How can I be optimistic? We used to be terrified of the Irish in the 1840s. We were terrified of the Irish and wanted to send them back. There was a time when we were afraid of the Mennonite German ancestry farmers in western Kansas. We were afraid of the Mennonites. We were afraid of the, of the Italians. We've been at the Japanese, incredible mistreatment of Japanese and Chinese Americans. The internment camps for the Japanese are horrible. We've been horrible to any number of groups in this country. But we, over time, we recognize that they, the, the Irish are great on more than St. Patrick's Day. That Mennonite farmers are just farmers, they're just people. And we are not there. I understand why you're depressed and afraid. I am too. And uh, the re treatment of trans Americans is just, just awful. But, but don't you think Obama's message that we're all just people, and because we're people, because we're all just people, that, that means we ought to treat everybody with decency and respect? That's not going to get everybody. But I think if he were here today, he'd say we're closer to that. 
and we have to keep moving and keep fighting. And go ahead. We have a. All right, uh, Professor, you say um, that surely God must have made a mistake in the pastiness of your skin. And my question is, what's stopping you from getting a spray tan? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, th- thank you for that aesthetic suggestion. But, I mean, it, don't you think it's obvious that I'm stuck in 1939? I mean, I... I am dressed the way a professor would have been in 1939, and this just isn't for the camera. This is the way I always am. You know, there's a principle of authenticity in rhetoric where you have to know who you are and and be who you are. And I, I, a spray tan on me, and so you, that means you know who you are and be who you are and act and dress that way. And I'm going to be a pathetic geek with a spray tan now. Well. You can tell me how pathetic I am later. I know there are other questions. I, we, we've, had, we've had too many Y chromosomes. Um, I guess, like, I mean, it's pretty evident, of course, that you are, like, very well educated in politics. And, you know, even now to this, like, today and time, not just in our books and stuff, would you say that there's anyone of any party, in any party, that is kind of in comparison to speakers like Obama or Reagan or anyone who like has the potential to be as successful rhetorically, I guess, or someone that you are excited to see um, in their future, I well, guess. It's a really good question. I, the, the truth is that um, rep, people who use rhetoric, rhetors, that's the technical term, as skillful as Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan, they come around in, you know, since the dawn of the 20th century, 1900. I only think of the two Roosevelts, TR and FDR, uh, Reagan and Obama, and of course, Dr. King, who's just in, along with Lincoln in a different class than, than others. I, we, we get transformative presidents like Reagan and Obama once every about 30, 40 years, and um, uh, secular saints like uh, Lincoln and King about every 150 years. So I, it is no criticism of, of the contemporary America to say that there is no one with quite the rhetorical skill of a Ronald Reagan or a Barack Obama. And let me also add that in Reagan's narrative about America, his description of a country as an empire of ideals that we've already talked about in this class. His vision of America where he says whether you're an Irish American or any other kind of a, an African American, he said it's your destination that matters more than your origin. That's, that, that narrative, not the policies, but that narrative is a great deal like Barack Obama. Uh, maybe tells you something about the power of the American dream and having an optimistic and inclusive vision as storytellers about American politics, uh, Barack Obama and, Re- and Ronald Reagan would have a great deal to talk about. Now, there are people with negative visions of this country who talk about America as a dystopia, and they have a great deal of power in American politics today, but they're not our topic for today. So I, I think, um, like many times in, a, in this nation, we don't have anybody with quite Obama 
or Reagan's gift for rhetoric because people like that don't come around very often. I think we've got one time for one more. Uh, the last couple elections, there seems to be like a lack of demeanor among politicians. I don't know how you feel that's fared in the last two cycles and whether or not we can get back to a point that's somewhat respectable. Oh, gosh, I sure hope so. <laughs> you know, you're, uh, what a smart comment that we've had elections, uh, presidential debates in particular, filled with statements of anger. And if you think about it, the vision that um, then-State Senator Obama gave maybe gives the answer to that. That if the defining characteristic that's most important is we're all Americans. If we're a nation defined by ideas, very similar to something Ronald Reagan said often, if we're a nation defined by ideals, then what does that suggest about how we should talk to each other? When people on the other side are making arguments about policy or values, we should listen, and then they should give us the chance to respond. We should discuss and debate. We should privilege facts, because as John Adams said, facts are stubborn things indeed. Unfortunately, in today's America, facts are a lot less stubborn than they, than they have been in the past. If we did that, if we listened to each other, if we focused on arguments, if we let the other side talk and then we talk and we treated everyone with decency and respect, then our elected leaders could get together and find real solutions for our problems. You know, they would work together and what Obama said about transcending red and blue might become a reality. Um, I, that may sound like a pipe dream today, but that kind of discussion where we listen to each other uh, has occurred in the past, and I have hope that we can get there once again. In a way, that's what training for this class, maybe, maybe if, in Obama's, when he ran for re-election in 2012, it was a bad economic time, and he, in his convention acceptance speech, he, he explained why he was optimistic. He talked about he was optimistic, again and again. And then he said, let me tell you why I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic not because of me, but because of all of you. And that attitude, that it is in the hands of the American people and to change the nation for the better by listening to people on the other side, responding respectfully and treating everybody with decency and respect, by recognizing the difference between fact and fiction. We could do that again. And that, as uh, President Kennedy said, is in your hands. And so um, now that we put the fate of the republic in the hands of the students in this class, I think it's been an hour well spent. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Lectures in History. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.